You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. I'll turn with me to John chapter 4. Just a page or two over for you. Um, Starting in verse 46. We read, So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So this is the uh, word of the Lord to us this morning. Would you uh, join me in prayer? Pray for me as I pray for you. Father, um, thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing that you've given us to um, be together this morning. as a dispersed church in our homes, yet still be able to meet and gather uh, through the blessing of technology where we can hear your word preached. But I'm reminded again of this comment that was made this week by a friend of mine who said that the doors of our church buildings may be closed, but our mouths are not. I pray, Father, that you would help us now to not only have our mouths open in terms of preaching your word, but help us to have our hearts open to receive from your word. 
And then help us throughout the week to open our mouths in various different ways and to share the love of Christ with people around us in our community. I pray, Father, that you would come now through the preaching of your word and that you would do um, what each of us is unable to do on our own, and that is give us the power of your spirit that our hearts might be mended, that our hearts might be encouraged, that our hearts might be strengthened, that we might be healed, and that we might know that we are not alone because we have a Savior who is the greatest friend. Because you gave it all for us, and because you left the tomb empty, and because you have promised to return one day. So Father, I pray that you would do all of that and more through the preaching and the study of your word this morning. I trust you to do it. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. So it seems uh, kind of providential to me that we would be diving into a series on the miracles of Jesus <coughs> in the Gospel <coughs> of John during this season that we find ourselves in in America. Uh, regardless of where you land on the spectrum between uh, cynicism in regards to our current circumstances to conspiracy theorists to outright panic, uh, I think that we could all agree in this moment that we really are living in an unprecedented time. Um, our nation, in many ways, appears to be at least somewhat divided along some really heavy uh, polarizing political lines. Um, you've got rumors of wars and skirmishes all across the world um, that we keep hearing about. <clears throat> Not to mention um, the big elephant in the room of a worldwide pandemic that is quarantined uh, large portions of the world's population for um, God knows how long at this point, right? Uh, top all that off with an economy that uh, isn't doing so great in this season. So it really is an unprecedented time for us to be alive. Uh, but regardless of where you land on the spectrum of either um, cynicism or conspiracy theory or outright panic, one of the most common responses to uh, what's happening in the world around us right now, I think, is kind of a deep longing. Um, it's a deep desire. It's, it's a prayer for the Lord to step in and do something. That seems to be a common theme that I have heard from many. And it's a natural response um, that, uh, that's been built into us. It's a natural mechanism that I think has been built into the very fabric of our beings. Okay, when, when the world goes on tilt, when life gets crazy, what happens is our hearts long to be set free. We long to be rescued. We long for things to change. We desire a way of escape. We literally begin dreaming of all the different possible ways that the circumstances of our lives around us could change. Ways that we want them to change. We ask the Lord to step in. We ask Him to change things in our moments of deepest desperation, in our moments of darkest fears, in our moments of crippling anxiety, we ask God to step in and to change the circumstances around us. And oftentimes we experience frustration, we experience doubt, we experience despair, we experience those emotions as we wake up each and every morning to find that oftentimes things have not yet 
change the way we wish they would have. In fact, sometimes we find that things are a little bit worse than they were the day before. That kind of longing for hope, that kind of desire for rescue, um, this is kind of what it would be like to be alive when Jesus shows up in these two passages today. Uh, the nation of Israel, honestly, um, in our passage, uh, just for some context, the nation of Israel is basically in ruins. If you've been with us in our study of Joshua for the last few months, things are much different today in this text than they were then. They're living in a highly politicized religious atmosphere and for the most part, most of Israel is living at the bottom of the barrel in terms of social economic status. Not, not many in Israel would have been considered wealthy or powerful or influential. Gone were the days of Joshua when the nation experienced great victory in the promised land. Those days are gone. Long passed, way behind them. As a people, the, the nation of Israel had rebelled against the Lord, had done what the Lord said, do not do. They had begun to worship other gods, false gods of the nations that were still living among them in the promised land. And over the years, for, for uh, well over a thousand years, Israel has been tasting the consequences of that rebellion as one super nation after the next basically came in and waged war against them and then left them nearly decimated. So that's kind of the context of the nation of Israel in the Gospel of John, and let's not forget as we zero in on the two stories that we read today, let's not forget the key players in our text. You've got a young couple who's getting married, right? They're getting married, and the entire day nearly falls apart when they run out of wine. And then you have a father whose young son is on his deathbed. He finds Jesus in his moment of desperation. And the question for us is, can you relate with where these people are at in the text? Can you relate with the deep desire for things to change? Can you relate maybe with their longing for a brighter future? Maybe you know what it's like to live in the gloom and the doom and the despair and the fear and the doubt and the worry of what's going to happen next. If you can relate with any of those emotions, then I, I think we'd be ready to dive into the text and ask what's going on here. And as we look at these two stories and we ask that question, what's actually taking place here, I think what we're going to see is that both of these stories are powerful reminders of what it means to really believe in Jesus in our darkest hours. So what's happening in our text? Let's take a, a look at the first one, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. What do we see there? Basic, Jesus attends a wedding, right? First thing that we see. Now, at first glance, this story might appear to be a great story for arguing your position for or against the use of alcohol. And to be sure, the church has done a great job over the years at using this text to support either side of the argument. Uh, you got one side claiming that the wine was just simply glorified grape juice. 
And then you got uh, uh, one side on the other side that uh, sometimes makes Jesus out to be their accomplice in their drunkenness. Uh, and while I do believe my personal stance as I study the context, I do believe that Je- Jesus definitely made some really great wine that uh, wasn't a watered-down version of glorified grape juice. Uh, While I still at the same time, I I loathe drunkenness because I've personally witnessed, I've personally experienced uh, its horrifying effects. Um, Despite all that, this text is not primarily uh, about arguing for or against the consumption of alcohol. It's not what this text is about. This, This passage is about the miraculous power of Jesus over a created substance. And then even at a deeper level, this passage is about where we find our true joy. I just want to ask you that question as you're thinking about this. Where do you find your true, lasting, eternal joy? Now to get at the heart of this text, um, you've got to get your head into a, a first century Jewish wedding. Okay? Uh, much like a wedding in our day, that this would most likely have been probably the biggest day of this young couple's lives. Um, and, and it's the same for us, but maybe a little bit different for them, and that, that this would have probably been the, literally the biggest day of their lives. They would look forward to this for a long time, especially the bride, just like today, would have planned this for a long time. The celebration wouldn't have just been a day or an evening, it would have lasted for many days. Uh, would have typically been very costly uh, for uh, normally very poor families. Um, and, and on this day, for this couple, Jesus with his disciples and his, his mother, they're all present for the festivities when Jesus' mother does what? She comes and informs Jesus that they have run out of wine. Now, think about this for a minute, okay? You've got to put yourself in their shoes. Um, this isn't like the local grocery store running low on your favorite bread beverage, so now you have to choose a different flavor from the myriad of flavors on the shelf. This isn't that kind of frustration. This isn't that kind of a loss of joy. Um, wine in the Jewish culture was a symbol of joy. Um, you look at Psalm 104.15 and Isaiah 55.1 and you get this sense that wine is a symbol of joy for them. And it's also, honestly, it's the main beverage that is typically served for guests to enjoy together, typically enjoyed with some food. So running out of wine doesn't just mean you get to go pick a different flavor off the shelf. Running out of wine at a wedding means that the joyful festivities of that wedding day are going to come to an end prematurely. You know what that's like when you're looking forward to something. And then suddenly you find out that all of the joy leading up to what you were looking forward to suddenly comes to a halt, right? That's what's happening here. So despite the fact that Jesus wasn't quite ready to let the whole world know that the Messiah was on the scene, his mother, his mother, moms always know, don't they? His mother knew Jesus possessed the power to reinstate the joy of the festivities. So what does she do? She tells the servants, 
to do whatever Jesus told them to do. It's funny, she just doesn't even listen to him, which I think is crazy. Like, only the mother of Jesus can get away with not listening to Jesus. Okay, right? Right? Don't even listen to him, because he's like, woman, it's not my time. So she looks at the servant, she's like, hey, do whatever he tells you to do. The fascinating thing is that Jesus then turns to the servants and he tells them to fill up six massive jugs with water and then give some of that water to the wedding planner to taste test. Now, uh, don't miss something in the text that I think is kind of fascinating. Um, Jesus turns roughly about 120 to 180 gallons of water into 120 to 180 gallons of sweet wine. We talk about a wedding gift, right? Well, what, a, what an awesome wedding gift. Now, once the uh, wedding planner tasted some of this new wine, what does he do? Well, he runs over to the bridegroom. And this is, I think, what we need to catch the most. He runs over to the bridegroom. You might just write bridegroom down somewhere. But that's an important key um, piece of the Gospel of John, especially in these stories here. Runs right over to the bridegroom. And what does he do? He excitedly commends him for saving the best wine for last rather than serving the best wine first. Now, what's happening here, you have to ask, right? The common thought is that most bridegrooms would have served the best wine first, not last. Why? I think the reason is because if you serve the best wine first, then your guests drink that, you get a little bit tipsy maybe, and you don't notice that the wine at the end of the festival is lesser quality. And so what, what happens here in effect is that the bridegroom um, only has to buy so much of the expensive wine. He doesn't have to spend as much. He's able to spend less. And for a poor family, this makes an awful lot of sense. It's just merely a budgeting thing. So, it's fascinating that the picture we would get would be of a bridegroom who spends more at the end. That's the picture we get. Because of Jesus' miracle, people believed that the bridegroom at this wedding feast went all out and he served the expensive wine all the way through until the last batch. And that last batch was even more costly than the previous batch. So what do we learn here? The bridegroom is painted as someone who isn't afraid to save the best for last. He's not opposed to spending more for the sake of the joy of his guests. And the result of all this, what's the result? What's the response in all of this? Look at verse 11. Jesus' disciples believed in him. Simple as that. Jesus' disciples believed in him. You might highlight that text. The big takeaway from this first story is that Jesus himself He's willing and able to spend himself on behalf of your eternal joy. To say it again, the big takeaway from this first story is that Jesus is willing and he's able to spend himself on behalf of your eternal joy. Isn't this what we see in the cross of Christ? When Jesus goes to the cross, 
He's spending himself completely and expensively on your behalf and on my behalf for our eternal joy. Not momentary joy, eternal joy. And the question for all of us is this. Do I believe? Do I really believe in this Jesus? Take a look at our second text. Chapter 4, verses 46 to 54. What's happening here? What's happening here is that Jesus meets a wealthy man in these verses. Um, Take a little journey with me from the end of the first story to the second story. Right after Jesus turns the water into wine, as you thumbed through your Bible, right after Jesus turns the water into wine, what happens? He has a showdown in the temple with some of the religious leaders in verses 13 to 22 of chapter 2. And then the next thing that happens is he has this really awesome conversation with another religious leader named Nicodemus in verses 1 through 21 of chapter 3. He stirs up John the Baptist's disciples in verses 22 through 36 of chapter 3. And then as you continue to move through, you notice in verse 29 that John the Baptist refers to Jesus as what? The bridegroom. Chapter 3, verse 29, John the Baptist refers to Jesus as the bridegroom. And then following that, Jesus has this infamous conversation with a prostitute at a well. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 45. And that's a story that we're going to come back to in about five weeks. Um, After we take a walk through the Gospel of John and look at all these miracles, ending with the resurrection, once we get this big kind of panoramic view of what John is trying to make happen in his gospel through those miracles. Then we're going to come back with that whole context, that whole picture in view, and we're going to look at uh, the story of Jesus speaking with the prostitute at the well. Right on the other side of that conversation with the woman at the well, Jesus does what? Chapter 4, verse 46. He comes back to Cana in Galilee. Catch that. He comes back. He returns, right? He comes back and returns to Cana in Galilee where he had done what? What we just studied, that he turned water into wine. Could I propose for a minute that my thought is this? This is a picture of the bridegroom returning. What does that point you to? It points me to the promised hope of Jesus returning in glory to take us to be with Him as His bride. So when Jesus returns to Cana, He is approached by an official. Literally, the Greek word here for official means a nobleman, a king's man, or an influential man, or a powerful, a wealthy man. That's the kind of man that this official is. And his son is on his deathbed. So you think about this for a minute. The man who has it all from a power and influence and financial perspective, the man who has it all realizes that he actually has nothing from an eternal perspective. You think about this. There's many things that money can buy, And there's many things that money can't buy. Think about that. Many things that money can buy. Many things that money can't buy. Money, 
can buy a king-sized bed, but it can't buy sleep. Money can buy a great house, but it can't buy a home. Money can buy a companion, but it can't buy a close friend. Money can buy books, but it can't buy brains. Money can buy a church building, but it can't buy salvation, and it can't buy community. Money can't buy life. It can't buy health. It can't buy healing for a loved one. And this is exactly where this official, this wealthy man, finds himself when he goes to find Jesus. He could buy just about anything that he wants. Just about any earthly thing this man wants, he could most likely buy, but he couldn't buy his son's life. So he asked Jesus to heal his son. Now maybe he had heard of the miracle where Jesus had turned the water into wine. So he asked Jesus, come heal my son. Now Jesus' response in Verse 48 is pretty fascinating. If you take a look at it, it's a reminder that the wounds from a friend are actually really precious. And the kisses of an enemy lead to death. My loose paraphrase of a passage in Proverbs. Jesus responds to this man with a little bit of harshness. Kind of makes you want to go, yo, Jesus, dude, son is on the bed. He's dying. Like, is this the time to be harsh? Like, What kind of bedside manner do you have, Pastor Jesus? Hello, right? Okay. Um, Pretty sure there'd be lots of Facebook posts about how rude Jesus' bedside manner is. But it's a little bit of harshness when Jesus responds to him. This harshness is basically getting after this uh, possibility that there could be a desire for entertainment inside this man. Maybe this man just wants to be entertained by Jesus' miracles. And the reality is this. Entertainment doesn't produce saving faith. Entertainment doesn't produce saving faith. So this response from Jesus to this man whose son is on his deathbed, it's not Jesus being mean. This is Jesus speaking harsh truth to ensure that this man does not come to a place of faith that is based solely upon what he sees with his eyes. It's important for us to catch. And we often get lured in by what we can see with our eyes, what we can hear with our ears, what we can taste with our lips, what we can experience with our emotions. Entertainment doesn't produce saving faith. Saving faith is not a product of what we can see. In the Christian faith, no one sees before they believe. You'd be hard-pressed to find it anywhere in Scripture. That anybody was able to see before they believed. The honest truth from Scripture theologically is that we see because we believe. And we're enabled to believe because we're given a brand new heart. Hebrews 11, 1, 13, and 27 help to underscore that. You see, previous to having faith, previous to being a person of faith, what are we? We're spiritually blind. Another way of saying it would be spiritually dead. And what do dead men not do? They don't get out of their grave and walk. 
But what do blind men do? They don't open their eyes and see unless something miraculous happens. Jesus wants to make sure that this man's faith is real. That to Jesus is more important than the momentary circumstances of this man's son on his deathbed. But the beauty of this story is that Jesus is also concerned about our momentary circumstances. <coughs> so the question is, how does this man respond to Jesus? How does he respond to Jesus when he presses him about the fakeness of entertainment-based faith? The man holds his ground. Doubles down, so to speak. He asks Jesus to heal his son again, to which Jesus says what in verse 50? He says, go, your son will live. And then what does John record for us? Well, John records that the man believed every word that Jesus spoke to him. See that word there, believed, right? That the man believed every word that Jesus spoke to him, and then he went on his way. And then later, most commentators believe roughly 24 hours later, the man returns home to find what? Finds his son recovering well. And John records again in verse 53 that the man believed now along with his entire household. So it's a fascinating story of what an encounter with Jesus actually produces. It actually produces saving faith. Spiritual eyesight, new life. Now it's important to note here, um, as you're thinking about this text, that as I said a minute ago, that most scholars point out that this man returned home roughly 24 hours later. Let me think about that for a minute. 24 hours later. Think the trip took that long? Journey um, should have only taken him a couple hours at best, based on the distance between the two. So why the delay? Why the delay from the point that this man hears, go, your son is going to live. Everything you've wanted on this earth is there for you. Why did it take this man maybe 24 hours to get there? Why did he get there the next day and not a few hours later? If this was the thing that he wanted the most was for his son to be healed, why does he show up the next day. Could it be that this is a fruit of what true belief looks like? Could it be? That true belief helps us not to rush into things. That you're able to live in a rested, calm, peaceful, confident manner. Jesus said, my son... It's going to be healed. I believe every word that came out of his mouth. I've got some errands I'm going to run before I get home. I know that when I get there, it'll be fine. I'm going to question what Jesus says. That's the sense of this man's belief that I get. He's not rushing home to see if his son is okay. He knows. He believes that his son is going to be okay. Why? Because Jesus said it. You can believe every word that comes out of the mouth of Jesus. He is the Word who has become flesh. He's the bread of life. He's the one who brings us sustenance. No reason to rush things when you trust Jesus. At the end of the day, this story teaches us that believing in Jesus is not about being entertained. It's not about getting a quick fix. 
Believing in Jesus is about being transformed in His presence. Believing in Jesus isn't about a transaction. It's not about a transaction where I do this so that Jesus will do that. Believing in Jesus is about transformation whereby I am transformed, changed by God's grace through faith in Jesus. This man was transformed into a real believer. He came to Jesus as a man who believed that he had it all in an earthly sense. And then he was transformed into a man who gained it all in an eternal sense. Because he believed in the word of Jesus. So in conclusion, got to ask the question that we always ask after going through a deep dive into a passage of scripture. What's the question we always ask? You might write it down on your piece of paper in front of you. Why does this matter? Who cares? What difference will this make? How do these passages speak into our current circumstances? <laughs> well, the reality of the first text that we looked at is that Jesus is the best wine who fills us with lasting joy amidst any circumstance, right? You think about the gift of daily pleasures that you and I have. The gift of daily pleasures like a glass of wine or grape juice, whatever you want to drink. It's a daily pleasure. Soda, Gatorade, Kool-Aid, lemonade. It's a daily pleasure that we have to go to our fridge or go to our shelves and grab that glass of beverage. Daily pleasure to have a good conversation with a friend or to read a good book, or to watch a good movie. But the thing about those daily pleasures is that they are all momentary. Now, I don't know about you, if you've experienced this lately, since we've all been kind of locked up in our homes watching old reruns, old movies. I don't know about you, but um, when I watch a great movie, like for the first time, I've been anticipating it, you know, and, and then I watch that movie, and then when the movie's over, I'm left with this feeling like, is there anything else they can compare? You know? Like, it's really hard to, like, go find another movie. Like, on one side, you can't go to sleep because you're kind of jacked up about this really good movie you just watched. But then you can't find another movie to satisfy you. Right? Like, every movie you try to watch after that, it's like, nah, it kind of falls flat. Like, you even try to go back to some of the great movies that you've watched in the past. You're like, that just, it doesn't do it. It doesn't come anywhere close. It's kind of the same principle of chasing the first high. For any addict, um, you're never going to trump that high, that first experience. So daily pleasures um, are momentary. They don't last. not eternal. We experience that. And here's the thing, okay? I, here's what I don't want you to hear. I don't want you to hear that daily pleasures are bad. Because they're not bad. Daily pleasures in the right context not bad at all in fact they're they're given to us on purpose for a reason the problem with daily pleasures is that we oftentimes make those the ultimate goal of our lives the only reason i'm alive is to is to get that next experience is to get to that next daily pleasure to buy this to have that to attain this to get there to create this 
That's when those things become the ultimate goal of our lives. And the reality is the purpose of any of these momentary pleasures, the purpose of those momentary pleasures is to point us to the everlasting joy that can only be found in Christ. When I say this, I'm thinking about that this is what led James to say, count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So you're also going to remember that the author of Hebrews says that we can run with endurance. We can run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, catch that, the joy that was set before him. What did he do? He endured the cross. He despised the shame. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What does that tell you? That Jesus is where we find our ultimate joy. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will never leave you or forsake you. He came as a friend and a savior. In the midst of any, every circumstance, Jesus is our lasting joy. What about the second text? You remember the second text, the man who thought he had it all came face to face with what? And face to face with his own limitations. Have we not all come face to face with our own limitations over the last few weeks? find that we actually control absolutely zilch, nada, zero. We're limited, severely limited. Came face to face with his own limitations, his own realization that death was coming for his son. And he was absolutely helpless to do anything about it. And here's the reality. The reality is that in the history of mankind... The first grave was dug for a young man named Abel. His sickness and disease is no respecter of person, no respecter of race or ethnicity or age. Sickness and disease do not discriminate or play favorites. You know who you can go ask about that is a man named Job in the Old Testament. He would know. This really is the the ugly truth of the effects of sin upon the world that we live in and therefore upon ourselves. Not to mention the ugly effects of sin against a holy and righteous and good and kind and loving and gracious and merciful and perfect God. It's not to mention the effects that it has on Him. Every one of us is going to experience the horrors of sickness and disease and death. That's the bad news. But the good news, the flip side of the coin, is that while death and decay do come for every one of us, there's one person with whom we can place our trust in. 
There is one person whom we can believe in just like the disciples in the first story believed in and just like the wealthy man in the second story believed in. There is one person who has laid a victorious claim over the clutches of Satan and sin and the grave and his name is Jesus. Jesus is our healer. He gives us what we cannot buy. He gives us what we cannot work for. And He gives us what we therefore could never earn. That's the beauty of grace. Jesus gives us what we do not deserve. That's the gift of everlasting life. And He withholds from us what we actually do deserve. That's the penalty of everlasting death. He does that through the cross. <coughs> the question this text begs of us, as I said earlier, and it's going to continue to beg of us all the way through our study of this book in the coming weeks, is do I really believe in Jesus? You see, the whole purpose of the Gospel of John can be found in chapter 20, verse 31. It is the purpose statement for the book by which all of the Gospel of John is written. It is the center. In chapter 20, verse 31, we read that John wrote this book. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. You see, the two miracles that we've studied today, and they are written so that you and I may believe in Christ as our Savior from the penalty of our sin so that we might have everlasting life. When Jesus died on that cross, His body was broken and His blood was shed in a horrific way. He was perfect. He didn't do anything wrong. And He was horrifically murdered on that cross to pay the penalty and the price for our sin so that we could come to Him by grace through faith Trust in His work and know that we too can have eternal life and thereby have eternal joy. We see in the midst of the grief and the fear and the loneliness and the, and the brokenness of sin and even of this season that we find ourselves in, what can we do? Well, we can believe. That's a spiritual gift that God would give you and I pray that that's what God would do now. Is help you to believe and therefore have joy everlasting amidst any of the worst circumstances you could find yourself in. Why? Because Jesus is our healer. He gives us eternal rest, eternal peace, eternal wholeness, and eternal joy through his work at the cross. And the question remains, do you believe? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. And Lord, I do pray as we turn our attention to You for in these remaining moments as we sing together, as we pray together, as we receive communion together, I pray, Father, that You would turn our hearts to the work of Your Son, Jesus, at the cross, the power of the empty tomb, and the hope of the promise of heaven. Help us to find our joy in You and help us to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. 
You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. 